I am so excited today to share with you uh, basically the crescendo so far of the Gospel of Luke. Kind of a bummer for Pastor Ron that he had to go out to Texas for um, a wedding, but really exciting for me because I got one of the best parts of Luke so far, so that's really cool. Luke 9, 18 through 27, if you want to turn in your Bibles there now, just so that later on we're not flipping through pages. If you're using a pew Bible, because hypothetically your brown ESV Bible is gone, then it's on page 866. 867, actually. I was just kidding about the first one. 867. Also, a related announcement. If you have seen a brown leather ESV Bible, it is mine. And so I would like to have it back. (laughs) 867. There are things in this world that cost money or time. It's just how this world works. It costs things. One of the first examples is of this, which is a Tesla Model S. Uh, SRP is around $72,000. This isn't a presentation, by the way, to get you guys to buy me. I really don't want a Tesla. My Honda Accord is doing okay, so... There are other things that cost money. For example, a house on Glen Street, uh, which just recently sold for $535,000. It was pretty much up for sale for like a day, and then it was sold. We drove past it yesterday, and it was already in escrow. There is another thing that costs money, and if you've been on Garden Grove Boulevard in Brookhurst at all, you've probably recognized this building which just sits there and rusts, which is a really cool, rusty skeleton. Uh, Most recently, I looked this up yesterday, most recently they're talking about turning it into senior living apartments. So good news for our community that this might actually be turned into something instead of just a fire house. It caught on fire a little bit ago, but that's unrelated to this sermon. Uh, The people who built this didn't actually count the cost to build it. They tried to throw it up, and then the... Uh, downturn of the economy and other financial problems cost them to just leave it up. Point is that there are things in this world and things in this life that cost us. One of the things that we rarely think of that cost us anything is our Christian walk. But what we'll see today in Scripture is that it actually costs us a lot more than what we would have expected going in. Maybe more than, um, definitely more than what the disciples expected going in. That it was an expensive cost. We're going to see this cost. We're going to see um, an answer to the question that's been asked by a lot of people so far. And who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? If, you have, if you've noticed in Luke, this question keeps coming up. Definitely since Luke 7, it's been picking up. Who is Jesus? Who do people say that he is? And this question has extreme significance for our lives today. It's the same question that we ask today and that we ask Um, even of ourselves. Who do you say that Jesus is? First point of the sermon is that the truth of Jesus is confrontational. The truth of Jesus is confrontational. If you open up your worship folder, you'll notice a blank half sheet in there. Those are the best that I could do for notes today. Um, Yeah, I I was working on that, and I couldn't find it on the server. And we've had some technical problems, and my computer doesn't work. So... You get a half sheet. But you can write those things down. Um, I'd encourage you not to draw dinosaurs while I'm speaking. Afterwards is fine. 
the truth of Jesus is confrontational. Let's pick up our Bibles and start reading in Luke 9. Now it happened while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. This is a really weird scene because uh, for many of us who've grown up in the church, we kind of see this story as a victory for Peter. But I really want to tell you a different story today. That this story is not a victory for Peter, but rather Jesus is about to reprove Peter for this answer. doesn't really make sense because you see, well, he, he answered it right. He is the Christ of God. We'll get into that in a minute, but that wasn't the point of what Jesus was asking. That wasn't the, that wasn't the right answer in Peter's mind. It happened while he was praying alone. You'll remember from earlier chapters, definitely right before uh, Jesus chose the 12 disciples, he does this a lot. Jesus goes out and he prays alone a lot. Uh, bonus for today is that praying alone is huge to your life as a Christian. It's a huge part of living in the Spirit. Jesus does these things by the power of God. He, he acts by God's power. He acts by God's uh, might, and he dedicates time, sacrifices time to pray alone. And so he's praying alone, and for any of you that have kids, you've probably experienced this with your alone time. The disciples were with him. Um, there's all his alone time is gone. They ask, who do, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Uh, remember from earlier in Luke 9, uh, right there, it's on the last page, Luke 9, 7, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. He was perplexed because some said that John had been raised from the dead. By some, Elijah had appeared, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. What did the disciples answer Jesus when he asked, Who do the crowds say that I am? Those same things. That's who the crowds say that he is. And Peter pipes up. uh, Peter the piper. He pipes up, and he says, "Uh, You are the Christ of God. That's not who you are. When Jesus confronts Peter and says, Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ of God. Now, again, that looks like the right answer, but what's actually happening here is that Peter's idea of the Christ is not too far off from this man. Does anyone know who this is? This is not a photograph, by the way. It's uh, it's Alexander the Great. Yeah, it's Alexander the Great. I did not color that myself. Um, It was just online like that. This is Peter's idea who, of who the Christ should be. From Peter's understanding of reading the Old Testament, the Christ was going to come in, he was going to reestablish Israel, and he was going to set up his throne in Jerusalem, and finally the Romans would be out, and there wouldn't be any more fear of persecution, and the, the Jews would finally be able to practice their religion freely and safely without uh, fear of Caesar coming in and taking that away. So when Peter looks at Jesus and he says, you are the Christ of God, his idea is this warrior king Probably exactly this picture of Alexander the Great. Because not too long before, Alexander the Great had come in and conquered. His desire was to overthrow Jerusalem. And um, praise God, the Jews were able to stand strong and and drive the Greeks out. But this was the idea in their mind of, we want our own Alexander the Great. We want someone to come in and set up his throne in Jerusalem. We want our people to finally have their place back where God had promised God's promise to the people of Israel was um, that they would have this land in Israel, and they, their desire was that 
um, just like God promised David in 2 Samuel 7, someone would finally be back on the throne. And they're looking at Jesus, and Peter says, you are the Christ of God. And he's right, and he's wrong. He is not this warrior king. That is not who Jesus came up to be yet. Jesus' first coming was uh, in order to do something much bigger than just set up a throne in Jerusalem. Praise God that his first coming was much bigger than that, because here we are 2,000 years later, and uh, I'm so glad that Jesus didn't just come up to set up his throne in Jerusalem, because now we are children of God uh, because of what Jesus came to do. So he says in verse 21, he continues on, in this next point in your blank sheet of paper, is that the truth of Jesus is costly. The truth of Jesus is costly. So not only is it confrontational where you must ask yourself the same question that Peter was asked. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? Some of you who have grown up reading C.S. Lewis know his liar, lunatic, Lord. That those are your three options. Either he lied about what he said, either he was a crazy guy from 2,000 years ago, or he is who he said he was, and he is Lord. And that's the right answer. Who do you say that Jesus is is the same question we ask ourselves today. And your answer to that question is costly. He strictly charged them, commanded them to tell no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. This high point of this gospel, this crescendo moment that we see here where Peter finally gets it and he says, you are the Christ of God. Peter looks like he's actually heading in the right direction and Jesus says, say that to nobody. Do not tell people that. Uh, You're going to find out a little bit later when Pastor Andrew teaches next week that Peter's response to things isn't always appropriate. So the transfiguration happens and Moses and Elijah are there with Jesus in glory. Um, and Peter's like, should we pitch tents so that we could all stay here? And they're all talking about Jesus' departure. And they're just like, ignore him. And God says, this is my son. Listen to him. Peter's response in moments isn't always the best. If Peter was going to repeat to people that this is the Christ of God, he was going to force this throne. He's going to be like, yes, and he's going to set up his throne and we're going to conquer people. Um, the zealots are going to start chopping off people's ears, which happens later anyways. Um, But that was this idea that Peter had. It's also worth noting that earlier on in the gospel, Peter was, um, Peter and the other disciples were confronted with this question that they asked themselves. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus forces them to answer that question and they finally realize this is the Christ of God, which in their minds means throne. But in Jesus' mind is this costly mission where he will be put to death, rejected by elders, chief priests, scribes. All the elite will reject Jesus. He will be killed and on the third day be raised. When you read Luke's gospel, this is um, one of three or four times that Jesus actually predicts his death and resurrection, which for us can be kind of confusing when we get to the end of the story and the disciples are all like, what's going on? How come Jesus was put to death? And we're reading the gospel. We're like, well, he said it three times. And he's going to rise on the third day. 
But the context of him saying this is that the Jews are probably very confused. And that they come to this and they're like, yeah, he's, uh, he's going to be the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the anointed one. And Jesus says, um, don't tell anyone that because I'm going to be put to death. And I'm going to die and be rejected by all these people. But three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. So this high moment of the gospel for us is probably a very low moment in the life of the disciples, in the life of these apostles. Because they're seeing Jesus like, finally, our nation's going to be restored. And Jesus is like, not quite what you're expecting. That's not quite the result you're expecting. Jesus is going to die, and three days later, he's going to rise from the dead. This point is that this truth of Jesus is costly. This ended up costing Jesus everything. Cost him his life. He was put to death. He was rejected by elders, chief priests, scribes, abandoned by his closest friends, um, spit at, mocked, ridiculed, put to death as a terrorist or a murderer would be put to death. This was costly. And so we see um, a, a great theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, say something like, uh, grace isn't cheap. This grace that you're given on behalf of Jesus because of your sin is not cheap. So sometimes we go about sinning flippantly, like, oh, God's going to forgive me. It's okay. Uh, let sin abound so that grace may abound, as Paul mentions in Romans. Um, but this is important to note, that this cost Jesus his life. Your sin that you're flippantly committing is something that cost Jesus his life. It was very costly. Yesterday, I posted on Facebook a quote from a song, and some of you who were alive in the 80s really enjoyed it. This is from Michael Card's song, God's Own Fool, and this is basically the lunacy of our religion, of Christianity, that this is what we believe. So come lose your life for a carpenter's son, for a madman who died for a dream, and you'll have the faith his first followers had, and you'll feel the weight of the beam. Our invitation to you, if you're not a Christian, is explicitly this. Come lose your life for a carpenter's son. For a madman who died for a dream, you'll have the faith his first followers had, and you'll feel the weight of the beam. Come lose your life. Give it up. It's done. It's over. And bear a, bear a cross. Great invitation. That's what Jesus invites the disciples to do. Um, looks really bad by our worldly standards, by our cost. We're looking at this and saying... Is this really worth it? Should we lose our life for this carpenter's son, this guy who looked like a madman who died for a dream? And should we have to carry the weight of this beam, the weight of this cross? The answer is that in the end, it is well worth it. The truth of Jesus is confrontational. The truth of Jesus is costly. And the third point is that the truth of Jesus is... No, not that man. The truth of Jesus is transformational. The truth of Jesus is transformational. He said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, follow me. Forever, for whoever would lose his life, for would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus just continues to flip things upside down. Um, 
He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. You're going to lose your life if you follow Jesus. Some of us um, maybe were uh, growing up in the church and had this gospel invitation presented to us and we heard things like, it's simple, it's easy, just believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. You'll have this fire insurance that on judgment day, it won't be a big deal and you'll just be like, oh, he was Jesus's. But Jesus' true invitation is explicitly this, that you are going to have to deny yourself. You're going to need to take up your cross daily and you're going to need to follow Jesus. If you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you try to lose your life, you will find it in him. Jesus' invitation is transformational. It affects every aspect of your life. Your past desires, your past pursuits shouldn't matter in the light of Jesus. As the psalmist says, if you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, why would you do anything else? Why would you pursue anything else? If we've seen this goodness of God, why would we try to save our lives? If we found something much better, as Jesus says in the parables, A man who finds a treasure hidden in a field sells everything to go buy that field and that treasure. It's this giving up of our own passions, of our own desires, of everything that we've strived for on our own in light of who Jesus is. This truth of that he is the Christ of God, that he will die and raise on the third day, forgiving my sins and forgiving yours, means that he has found a better way. That Jesus' better way is not, I need to do what AJ wants to do. I just got to do, and I just got to pursue what I want to pursue. A lot of things that I hear um, this generation, especially especially saying my generation, um, is things like, I just got to be myself. I got to I gotta do what I want to do. Just, you know, be my own unique person. Um, that's the opposite of what Jesus says here. In fact, Jesus says, deny yourself. He says, take up your cross daily. And he says, follow me. It is not about us. No matter how much we want to make it about us, it is not about us. When you uh, started to follow Jesus and you made that decision, um, as the song I have decided states, you decided that there would be no turning back. You decided to follow Jesus, there would be no turning back. Putting to death yourself, being raised in Christ. Galatians 2.20, Paul makes this point where he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. For I have died. The question today for all of us is, have we died? Have we died to our own sins? Have we buried our old self? Have we been raised again in Christ and lived that new life in him and through him? And an example of that would be bearing your cross, not just once, but daily. See, in the disciples' mind, they were about to go to Jerusalem And they're about to see Jesus bear this cross. But Jesus didn't say this was just a one-time thing that as I go to Jerusalem for uh, about a year, you're going to have to bear this cross with me. No, Jesus was saying daily. Bear your cross daily and follow me. This is this active um, obedience to Jesus of of dying to self, of uh, bearing your cross daily, of following Jesus. It's hard. It's difficult. That's the point. A cross, as if you've been in church for any time, you know is an instrument of medieval um, torture to the point of death. Uh, 
It was reserved for the worst of the worst. It was reserved for murderers. It was reserved for terrorists. People who bore their cross deserved to be mocked and ridiculed. That's, people would show up to do that. They'd be like, finally that guy's gone. Finally he's going to his death because he caused our people a lot of trouble. Finally he's marching on that way. Our Savior bore that cross. Our Savior received that ridicule. And we as his followers should be receiving the same. We should be expecting to receive the same. Mocking, ridicule. As we ourselves bear this cross daily, march to our own deaths, knowing that what we found in Jesus is so much better than the life that we could have saved on our own. There was a man who lived this truth. Uh, anybody recognize who this is? It's kind of obscure. Um, this is A.W. Milne. I don't know, that was probably on the tip of some of your tongues. A.W. <laughs> Milne. I have a story about him. A century ago, a band of brave souls became known as the one-way missionaries. They purchased single tickets to the mission field without the return half. One way to the mission field. Instead of suitcases, they packed their few earthly belongings into coffins. As they sailed out of port, they waved goodbye to everyone they loved, everything they knew. They knew they'd never return home. A.W. Milne was one of these missionaries. He set sail for New Herbides in the South Pacific, knowing full well that the headhunters had killed all the previous missionaries before him. He dedicated his life to God's work in the village. When he died, the village buried him in the middle of the village with an inscription that read, When he came, there was no light. And when he left, there was no darkness. A very practical example of this dying to self was these missionaries who packed their stuff in a coffin. Uh, A very dark reality is that they knew that they were setting sail to die. They knew that this was it. So they packed all their belongings, they waved goodbye to their loved ones, and they moved toward this mission field, uh, denying themselves, denying their own worldly pursuits and pursuing Jesus, expecting full well to die. That was the equivalent for them of bearing their cross daily. Uh, Putting to death all those previous things that had holds of their heart and pursuing the mission that Jesus had for them. That's what Jesus asked of his followers. That's what he asks of me and you to do as we follow him. The truth of Jesus is transformational. It affects every aspect of our lives. Finally, the truth of Jesus is gain. The truth of Jesus is gain. Luke nine twenty five through 27. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Did I skip 25? I skipped 25. For what, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? The truth of Jesus is gain. We see this uh, very explicitly explained here that if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul, it is worthless. It doesn't profit a man anything. 
whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory. Uh, maybe there's not opportunities for you to gain the world. Um, maybe you're uh, of a young person that thinks that everybody should be a celebrity and that your desire is to do whatever it takes to get there. Uh, I was talking to a professor of mine earlier this week, and he was talking about how easy it is um, to advance in things. He was saying, like, in politics, if you just, um, if you just accept that abortion is okay, so many doors open. He says that's, that's a compromise, and that's not um, putting to death yourself. That's just desiring these selfish gains. Why would you want to gain the world but lose your soul? And he said that in um, the, the field of uh, theology, it's really easy to just deny the inerrancy of Scripture and have all these other doors open and be like, yeah, you know, it's, ju- it's just, it, it's, not, it's not real. It's not a big deal. And so many other doors open for these biblical scholars. These are just two examples of denying, um, I'm sorry, of, of desiring to gain the world uh, at the cost of your soul. Jesus' desire for his followers is they wouldn't seek this kingdom in Israel alone. They wouldn't seek to make Jesus this uh, hero who, who took back the throne in Israel, who, who set himself back up in Jerusalem, who delivered the people from the Romans, but rather to take a step back and realize gaining the world for the cost of your soul isn't worth it. A very real, practical way to look at this is that your life, as it says all over Scripture, is but a breath. It's a vapor. It's tiny in compared to eternity. Decisions you make here, as God designed it, affect everything in eternity. Eventually, what we've decided to do here uh, will affect how we live in eternity. Um, And so... Very really, um, very practically, you can pursue all these passions of the world, all these sins. It feels good. It looks good. I like the way um, that people look at me when I do this, or I like the way that my friends react when I, when I do this. All the while, losing your soul in order to gain the world. Jesus' desire for... Um, the disciples is that they would not fall into this, not pursue this, but rather they would give up everything uh, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of furthering God's gospel. There is a man who wasn't a missionary, um, and her, his name is, anyone recognize this one? That's close. It is a his, historical figure. It's not Christopher Columbus, though. This is Hernan Cortez. Um, Cortez famously came to South America after several failed attempts to conquer South America. Cortez came, and uh, yeah, let me just read you this story. February 19, 1519, the Spanish explorer Hernan Cortez set sail from Mexico with an entourage of 11 ships, 13 horses, 110 sailors, and 553 soldiers. The indigenous population upon his arrival was approximately 5 million. From a purely mathematical standpoint, the odds were stacked against him by a ratio of 7,541 to 1. Probably a losing battle there. 
After the two previous expeditions had failed to establish a settlement in the New World, Cortez conquered much of the South American continent. What made this expedition so successful was in part due to Cortez's mission to have no plan B. He ordered the ships to be burnt upon arrival. It was all or nothing for Cortez. The crew and the army quickly came to terms with the truth that the retreat was not an option. They burnt the ships. They couldn't go back. Um, they couldn't sail back. I mean, if you're one of those soldiers, right, just on a completely side note, and you're there in Mexico with Cortez, who's leading you, and you see him burning the ships, you're probably like, are you, dude, that's the only way back. And he just burnt them all. Uh, the idea, though, was that Cortez would uh, give them no fallback, that they wouldn't just be like, ah, if we lose this battle, then uh, we'll just go back. That's cool. Uh, we saw the ships. And so Cortez was like, no, it's, you're all here. Everything else is gone. You're here now. This is where your life is. We're going to win this battle or we're going to die. Um, in a much more practical way, not just um, winning battles or wars against flesh and blood, we are in a battle as well. We're in a battle against principalities, against powers. Um, and if we're living one foot in the world and one foot in uh, the spirit, we are going to lose this battle. We're going to lose this battle against um, Satan and his demons. We're going to lose this battle against the world. It's just not going to work. And so what we need to do as Christians is we need to metaphorically burn our ships as well. We can't have a way back. We can't just be like, well, you know, I could try this Christianity, and if it doesn't work for me, I always have knitting. I'm not saying knitting is sinful. (laughs) An example of a fallback would be, I have my business. Okay. My mom knits, but she's not in here. Um, Yeah, if Christianity doesn't work, if it doesn't work to follow Jesus, I still have this other thing, and this is just a really cool fire insurance thing that I do once a week. So if I go to church on Sunday, if I pay my dues, if I drop a dollar in the offering bag and uh, say really kind things once a week, I'm probably all in, right? That's probably all it takes. Jesus' whole message up to this point to his disciples was the opposite of that. That it's so much more than just a once a week thing. That occasionally you decide to follow Jesus and occasionally you decide to walk in the world. Um, Jesus wants us to burn our ships like Cortez did. No turning back. Uh, One of my favorite times in here, and I think I mentioned this before, is when we do baptisms. Um, it's just such a beautiful time where we get to see uh, believers begin to walk in the word and walk in the truth. And we see um, them in the water and they share their testimony and then uh, they get buried in the water and they rise again to their new life in Christ. Dead to self and alive in Christ. That's the metaphor there. And if you're in this church, if you're a Christian who's pursuing Jesus, I mean, first of all, you need to be baptized. Second of all, if you haven't baptized, that was the picture you gave the church, was that you died to yourself, that you were not going to pursue these things of the world, that you were not going to try to gain the world, but rather that part of you is dead. It's unrecognizable. You are now pursuing Jesus. He says in verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. 
If you are ashamed of Jesus and his words, if you're too embarrassed to bring him up, if you're too embarrassed to live out this truth that Jesus has given to us, Jesus is going to be ashamed too. He's going to look at you and be like, Matthew 7 says, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Uh, Paul repeats this in Romans 1.16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. Um, this idea of not being ashamed of the gospel, of not being ashamed of the truth, is vital to who we are as Christians. And it is difficult in the world today sometimes. I mean, if you log on to social media or you talk to anybody um, at a coffee shop or at your work, you'll start to realize that there is a certain stream of views that is rather anti-Christian in the world today. And that it would be so easy. So many of us are non-confrontational people, and I think that's just, I mean, most people don't like to fight, so that's just generally people are non-confrontational. Um, but it would be so easy for us to just be like really quiet and just be like, yeah, you know, yeah, Christianity is lame. I just do it on Sundays. Or, I, yeah, it, it is a weird story. You're right. And to just be ashamed of Jesus and not actually live out your faith. But what Jesus asks of his disciples is to not be ashamed of him, to not be ashamed of this truth, but rather live it out and understand that this is the power of God unto salvation. This is the truth of God that he's given to us, that we might pursue him, walk in his words, and walk in his truth. That this isn't anything to be ashamed of, but rather it's life itself. Jesus said that he came to, have, to, came to bring us life, abundant life. We shouldn't be ashamed of things like that. On the opposite side, um, don't indulge in every Facebook argument or throw firestorms out on Facebook. Um, it can be a hindrance sometimes. Um, it can also be a good help, so just use discernment and pray through that and, and allow God to, to walk you through how to do that well and how to Pursue him well in those moments. Um, but just use good discernment on social media. That's your uh, millennial advice for the day. Jesus continues on the end of this section. But I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What is Jesus talking about? There's going to be people standing here who won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Like, this is a weird section for me. Um, I was reading it, I'm studying it, and in the past I kind of just read over it, I think. But I, I came up to it and I was like, there's people standing here who won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God. There's this weird um, section at the end of John, in 21, where the disciples randomly come up and they're like, so John's going to be alive until you come back? And Jesus is like, well, I didn't even say that. He's like, that's not for you to know. But you follow me. That's his command to the disciples. And so there's, there's some confusion for the disciples, probably from this and, and maybe from other allusions that Jesus gave on the kingdom of God. What's going on here is actually quite simple and easy to explain, is that in a couple sections we're going to see Jesus at the transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. And when God is like, this is my son, listen to him. And Peter's like, let's build tents. Um, that scene, that's where they see the kingdom of God. Um, so there's some standing here 
who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus' message here is unsurprisingly another moment in the Gospels where he starts to turn things upside down. Uh, to recap, he has, he's come in and he said, who do you say that I am? What is your response to the question that you ask when I calm the storm? Put him on the spot. Who do you say that I am? And they said, you are the Christ of God. Jesus says, tell no one, because it's not what you think it is. Um, for I'm going to die, and three days later I'm going to be raised from the dead. He starts to share this, um, this gospel with the followers. Um, the, their problem isn't the Roman government, but rather it's much bigger, and it's the problem of sin. As a way of application, I have some points for us to reflect on, and I have some points for us to ask of ourselves. These questions that are vital to our lives. These questions that are vital to how, how we live out the rest of our lives here on earth. First, I turned it off. That's not a question. That's Cortez. First question is, who do you say that Jesus is? Really quick, easy application point from the passage is this same question that uh, people have been asking of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Who do you say that Jesus is? And you can look at me and you can say, well, he is the Christ of God. And I got that answer, right? And you can give me a hundred Awana points. And I can spin that at the Awana store. And that's awesome. Um, uh, my Awana kids, our, our Awana kids, I guess, uh, they get this answer right all the time. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. Yay! Everyone's right. Um, but this is... Oh, that would be terrible. This is um, This is very practical and very impactful for every aspect of our life and that you shouldn't just look at this question and answer the right answer but consider in your own heart who is jesus how have i been living um, in light of who i think jesus is who do i communicate that jesus is who am i telling other people that he is so the next point is, is how does this affect your life how does who jesus is affect your life is it really cool head knowledge is it just this thing that sits in your head and you're like, yeah, Jesus is the Christ and my Awana leader high-fived me when I said that. So that must be really cool. Um, he is the Christ of God. And the impact that that has on your life, you die. So you die. If you answer the first question right, Jesus is the Christ, you have no other choice but to die to self. That your desires, your pursuits, and your passions no longer matter in the light of who Jesus is. It's dead. How have you sacrificed as a result of following Jesus? Does your life look any different than it did before you followed Jesus? What have you sacrificed? What have you given up and walked away from? For some of us who have grown up in the church, it's kind of hard. If we made a confession of faith at age seven or eight, we were kind of, I mean, not terrible kids, and so we kind of had this weird smooth transition, and so it's kind of hard to look back on and be like, yeah, how does my life look different? What have I sacrificed as a result of following Jesus? Practically, here's what this looks like. This looks like your time. This looks like um, sometimes your money. This looks like your conversations, your desires, your selfishness, gone. Um, I've heard stories 
people in this congregation losing jobs over uh, integrity, desiring to be following Jesus and desiring to pursue him, losing jobs just because they don't want to cut corners. They don't want to lie to their bosses um, or, or lie to their bosses' bosses. Has it cost you a job before? Has it cost you a promotion at work? Mostly, this costs us our time. How does this look this week, even in the mundane? This has been something that's been on my heart a lot recently, is that as I continue to pursue Jesus, those mundane moments, those moments that are like every day I wake up and I brush my teeth and I kind of just spend a little bit of time at home, how do I be faithful in those moments? What does that look like? And so what does that look like daily? This week, as you, if you have those moments where you're like, I wake up, I go to work, I do that five days a week, I come home. Um, what does sacrificing, what does following to Jesus, what does denying yourself and taking up your cross look like in those moments? And I don't have an answer for you. That's really something that you need to be um, praying about and thinking through and allowing the Spirit to work in your life of how does faithfulness, how does daily obedience and sacrifice look in those moments? Next question is similar to the second one, is that how does, um, how has the old self died in your life? How has the old self died in your life? Again, if you're not seeing much difference between your life before Christ and after Christ, you probably haven't given your life to Christ. You probably haven't borne your cross. You probably haven't denied yourself. You probably aren't living in Christ. So how has your old self died in your life? People who are grammatically critical, I was trying to find a good way to uh, phrase that, and I realized it looks really weird. Um, that was the best that I could do with that point. So your forgiveness there would be kind. <laughs> <laughs> have you lost your life for Jesus? Have you lost your life for Jesus? Is it no longer you who live? Um, th- this was such a struggle for me. Um, when, when, I, when I came to the Lord, when I started to follow him and rededicate my life to him around 16, um, I mean, I wasn't doing anything crazy, but God had put it on my heart that he wanted me to be a pastor. And I was like, there is no way. Like, are you serious? Like, I'm this quiet kid who doesn't like to talk to anyone. Um, and you want me to talk in front of people. So I was like, there's no way. You, that, that's just like, I just made that up in my head. And so I'm like, I'm just, let's just ignore that. And let's walk away from that. And I'll just continue living life over here. And I'll be like, um, my goal was to be a GM of a sports team. That would have been so cool in my mind. Um, this is so much better than that. God had to continually show me over and over again that putting to death that prior dream and living for this is so much better. And that's not to say that I'm this like superhero who does everything right and well. I am selfish as I'll get out. And I, I've been working on that and God's been hammering me on that. Um, and, and picking up your cross daily is so practical for me of how am I daily going to walk in obedience. We see in Scripture that God's mercies are new every morning. So how are we going to bear the weight of that beam? How are we going to carry our cross every day is extremely practical. Maybe there's a day where you fail. 
And I'm not going to say that's okay. In fact, Scripture condemns that. But there's a new day coming, and you have the next day to pursue following Jesus, to bear the weight of that beam, to deny yourself. This one isn't a question. It's just practical. The world is not worth your soul. The world is not worth your soul. Maybe this is more practical for our youth, but some, sometimes social media is really easy to win at. It's really easy to um, get a bunch of likes and a bunch of comments on um, your posts on your Facebook. I'm not going to give you secrets to do that because you shouldn't be looking after people's likes. Um, but it's really easy to say the right things and look really cool and just be like, we should all love each other. No one's going to be like, no. Like, everyone's going to be like, yeah, that's a great thing to do. Like, we should all love each other. Um, but if you're going out there just to gain popularity, to gain followers, to gain recognition, to gain a promotion, at the cost of your soul, at the cost of who you are in Jesus, it is not worth it. It is not worth it to gain the world and to lose your soul. Finally, what we have gained as a result of following Jesus far outweighs the little that we gave up. I read a book once, and the author said, (laughs) I read a book once. Um, I was reading this book a while ago, and the author said, I really don't believe that anyone's ever sacrificed anything for Jesus. He says, because what you gain back from this supposed sacrifice of giving this up far outweighs what you've put in. And so he was using language more like investment rather than sacrifice. I don't know if I fully agree, but you get the picture of this this gain, this return, far outweighs what we've put in. Um, the beauty of the gospel is that God sent his son for you and for me. Undeservedly. First John says that um, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us. Um, it's not that we loved him, but that he first loved us. So Jesus steps into time And he comes and he sacrifices his life. The Alpha and the Omega, by the way, the one who spoke the world into existence, the one who knew you from before creation, who's seen your life, who's seen your sins, who's seen you live out and walk in disobedience, constantly mock and ridicule him, he's the one who died for you. He's the one who knows you best. He's the one who sacrificed his life for you. Why? One of my Awanakids asked this the other day. They said, why why did... To make man if he knew they were going to be sinners. This was like in Sparks. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, jeez. Um, some of your kids are like little theologians, by the way. You should be very proud. Um, I, I just looked at them, and the answer that we give is out of his good pleasure, because he wanted to. It doesn't make sense to us. Why would you create this human being? Formed from the dirt, remember the word, word dirt, we're dust, and to dust we shall return. Forms this human being from the dirt, and the human being rejects him, and continues to produce human beings that keep rejecting him over and over and over. Makes no sense. We are beings from the dirt, and we keep rejecting our uh, sovereign creator who's done nothing but given us good gifts. We continue to reject him, continue to ridicule him. And he gave his son anyway. It's perplexing. It doesn't make sense. 
Yet this is the God we worship. Uh, the one that we sang all those names to this morning. That he has no rival. That there is none beside him. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Redeemer. He is our God and he is our Savior. And he's worth giving up what little we have to follow him. Last story. That's an axe head, by the way. Um, so some of you know where I'm going with this. Um, one of my favorite transitions in scripture is when Elijah gives Elisha his coat. And Elijah gets carried like on his chariots back to heaven. Uh, swing low, sweet chariots. And he comes, comes up. Um, and he gets carried back into heaven. And then Elisha gets the coat, right? And Elisha's first miracle is to raise this axe head. And you're reading scripture and you're like, what? Is he, he raised an axe head from the bottom of the river? And Elijah was calling down fire and causing the prophets of Baal to run. And he also stopped rain from coming down through his prayer. Um, and Elisha starts off by raising an axe head. And so it's kind of like, poor Elisha. He actually does eventually get some pretty good things going, like raising people from the dead. <laughs> kind of redeems himself a little bit. I'm just saying, if, if you're playing fantasy prophets, uh, draft Elisha in the later rounds, stockpile him on the bench, and eventually he'll... Uh, <laughs> Elisha was called by Elijah to come follow him. And so Elisha had a life. He had things. And we see this continually in the Old Testament, by the way. Abraham had a life. Um, Moses, I mean, he was just he was a shepherd. Um, but Elisha had a life. 1 Kings 19, 19 through 21. So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke and oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak on him. This, I mean, it looks really weird, but this is just how you'd like pass on your ministry back then. He just put his cloak on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I had done to you? And he returned from following him, took the yoke of the oxen, and sacrificed them. Boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose, and he went after Elijah and assisted him. Assisted him. Elisha burned everything he had. He burned, he burned the yokes, he boiled the oxen. Um, I don't know how oxen taste, but people ate it. Um, and he gave up all of his old life, dead, gone, past. He's not going back there. He kissed his parents goodbye, and he followed, he followed Elijah. And he pursued this life of godliness with Elijah. This is the same thing we're asked to do, but not with Elijah. We're asked to do this with Jesus, the only one who's worthy of our praise, the only one who deserves our worship. He's asked us, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, and to follow him. So I'll leave you today with one question, and that question is, who do you say that Jesus is? Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for your word and your truth. Thank you that you are a God who loves us enough to communicate to us. Not only that, Lord, but you gave your son for us. Lord, help us to give up our lives and our selfish ambitions for you. Help us to sacrifice daily. Help us to deny ourselves. Help us to take up that cross, follow you, pursue you. Lord, teach us what that means in daily obedience. Teach us how to live and walk in your truth. 
Lord, us Christians in this room, we desire that. We desire to pursue you. We desire to worship you. Lord, help us to fight against the flesh. Help us to pursue you well and to glorify you. In Jesus' name.